Hey there, this is Paul Roberts of the Security Ledger. If security and the Internet of Things are your thing, I wanted to let you know about a great event Security Ledger is hosting on June 19th in Boston. It's the fifth Security of Things Forum. It's a full day of great content on securing the Internet of Things. If you're interested in learning more or attending the forum, point your web browser to the event website, securityofthings.com, to learn more or to register. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, number 100, what happens when discussions about the security of bits and bytes have consequences measured in flesh and blood? Joshua Corman, the Chief Security Officer at the firm PTC, joins us to talk about it ahead of his featured presentation at next week's Security of Things Forum in Boston. But first, everyone knows that electronic voting is a joke. The annual DEF CON hacking conference has been hosting voting villages where enterprising hackers beat up on voting equipment for more than a decade. But the fact that voting machines are a security joke doesn't mean that voting electronically is a joke or even that it's less secure than voting by paper. Our first guest should know, Tavi Kotka spent four years as a chief information officer for the nation of Estonia whose government is widely recognized as among the most technologically advanced in the world. Estonians have been voting electronically since 2005, easily, efficiently, and without incident. Kaka said his countrymen don't even use the word electronic voting anymore because the U.S. has, quote, spoiled that term. They call it i-voting instead, or voting over the internet. And voting is just one of a long list of government services that Estonia now provides online. Pretty much everything, in fact, can be done electronically except getting married and getting divorced, Kotka said. In this wide-ranging conversation with the Security Ledger podcast, Tavi talks to me about his country's ascendance from a poor Soviet satellite to an advanced nation on the vanguard of electronic governance. He talks about why he thinks privacy advocates in the U.S. who link electronic governance with privacy and security violations have it backwards. To start off our conversation, I asked Tavi to talk about his own history and how he came to own the CIO title in Estonia. My name is Tavi Gotka. I'm a former chief information officer of Estonian government. Um, today I'm back in private sector as an engineer uh, working in a company called Proud Engineers and also working for Reliance Geo in India. So we're here talking because you're going to be coming to our hometown, Boston, Massachusetts, in a couple weeks to speak at the Identiverse uh, conference. That's an an event that uh, Ping Identity sponsors. It's got a whole bunch of folks coming to talk. And you're going to be talking on the topic of digital transformation from the perspective of somebody who had a fairly high position at what is recognized really as the most digitally advanced nation on earth, and that is the nation of Estonia. Talk just a little bit about maybe your own history and how you came to um, really head up Estonia's effort to transform government services. First of all, the transformation from Estonia to Estonia, it actually started 20 years ago. I was a programmer back then, and uh, I was part of the team who built up the largest software development house in, in our region. 
and I was a CEO of the company many years. And I sold my shares uh, in 2012, and uh, I got this non-competition thing, so I couldn't compete in private sector. As Estonia is a small country, everybody is a relative here, so we always meet each other in weddings and funerals. Then uh, the government noticed that I might be unemployed, so they said, like, why not you work as a CIO? And... Uh, <laughs> Why not? I mean, obviously I said no, because if you are 33 and perfectly healthy, you don't work for the government. But uh, I have to admit, they were very persuasive. And then and, and finally I said yes. And uh, it was it was a great journey. Uh, like uh, already mentioned, we did real-time economy, uh, we did uh, e-residency, we did data embassies. Uh, so like like many, many, many very interesting projects that I never could do in private sector. So and, but now I'm back in private sector, like uh, enough is enough. Like um, you, can't, you can't work in government for eternity. You mentioned the e-residency program. Could you just talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that came about? I mean, I wrote an essay together with two other government officers four years ago that what if uh, Estonia becomes great again? So uh, we were like great country before Second World War. I mean, our GDP per capita, for example, was the same or even slightly higher than Finland. But then we had this 50 years occupation from Soviet Union. And uh, we are 1.3 million country. And to become like, truly great again, we need more people. We thought, how can we solve this challenge? So birth rate is not an option, uh, immigration is not an option, but if everything is digitalized, then in Estonia it's, it, it is truly digitalized, so everything can be done through mobile phone or, or, or computer, so it means that it's location independent, and if every, anything or everything is location independent, you can start serving customers also not from your home country, and that was the idea, that what if we increase our population up to 10 million, from 1.3 million to up to 10 million. So basically, like eight times. We just wanted to pilot that. Tim Traper, for example, had a, had a talk a couple of weeks ago in Vienna that uh, the future will be the governments will continue to have this war about the talent. As today, it's about the physical talent who gets the best people to live in Boston or in Silicon Valley. The future will be who who provides the best service like to the people virtually. The mm -hmm. government service basically becomes a commodity, and the ones who actually provide it in the best way will be the winners. And we are testing that concept. We, we're trying to understand what it actually takes to serve customers from another, another country because we don't want to be a tax haven. So we are not a tax haven. So we don't give you any tax incentives or anything like that. So so we are not New Delaware or like Panama. Cyprus. Cyprus thing. <laughs> what we already have understood during the last three years that there are huge amount of people who, for example, uh, want to get hassle-free government service, which is, which is easy to use and cheap. So we already know that our pilot is, is, is going to be successful. Right? What types of services does, does the e-residency provide? These are really business services for uh, individuals or companies, right? If you have everything digital, it means that you need to identify who is behind the computer and this person can use any kind of services. So uh, what we did is that we allow foreigners to use the same services for what Estonians are using. 
And as in Estonia, you can digitally sign documents in a, in a proper way, not like the toko sign you have in, in the US. That's a joke. Like, so, so like in a proper way, like timestamped with proper security that cannot be like breached, etc. If, if, if you have this ability, you can use this. I mean, like, for example, many people in nearby countries, let's say from Finland, Russia, uh, Sweden, they have their uh, property in Estonia. So it's better to maintain your property from distance if you have that ability to actually can do everything behind the computer. Okay, so what else can we do? Can we do business? Can we, can we create companies for those people? Can we run those companies from, from distance? It's actually like a marketplace. So, uh, and we're trying and, and, and testing different uh, focus groups. And, uh, and one we have found is uh, definitely are the digital nomads. So because... Estonia is a small country, and we our economy has been, uh, uh, how say, we optimized to serve small companies, very micro companies. And now, if the like digital nomad travels around and they have like, their own like micro or small company, we want to be the best country to to handle that that business for them. So basically, it's mostly business. And, and and running your company from distance, but it, it's not tight with that. So we basically test very different environments. Like, talk about just a little bit as a resident, a citizen of Estonia. Um, what types of government services do you access um, digitally online? Or I don't know. Maybe it's better to ask what what don't you access online. <laughs> Everything. I mean, there are like two services that you cannot do digitally. It's uh, the marriage. Like uh, you cannot marry yourself, marry yourself like over the internet. So you have to see the clerk uh, together with your partner. And another thing is divorce. So, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. But that's that's I'm actually I envy uh, Denmark here. In Denmark, you actually can divorce over over the e-service. Like in Estonia, you can't. In Estonia, you <laughs> truly have to appear in front of the clerk again. Like. We actually like to say seamless because when you talk about digital transformation, then then most countries and also Estonia, they make they they make this mistake that they think that if you take your current processes and you take them from paper to the to the digital service, then you actually have been digitally transformed. But it's not true. I mean, people actually don't want to use government services, and if something can be handled uh, hassle-free some, somehow in, in, in the background, they prefer to use that. I mean, for example, if child is born uh, in Estonia, the government names the baby. So it means that the child gets the unique identifier that will that follows like him or her like uh, to the end of the end of the of the lifetime. So, um, and uh, like usually the mother had to apply for child support money. So historically it was on paper, then it was digitalized. And, and when you say the government names a child, obviously the, the parents pick the child's name, but you, you register the child with the government and, and they get a unique uh, government identifier, right? The government uh, in, in identifier get, you get on the same day. Yeah. The official name you, you get during the next 14 days. So that's why we say that government names the baby first thing. So. Oh, right, right. And, so, and that identifier, is it, like a, is it like a hash or something? I mean, what is, what is it? No, it's, uh, it's actually a meaningful number. So it actually includes your sex, your birthday, uh, the region where you're coming from, and uh, with, like, which, like, what number of, of child you were on that day from, on, in that hospital. 
it used to be that you applied for the for the service, but now as everything is connected in Estonia, all the government systems uh, in a trusted way, uh, we can see that okay, child was born, so we could actually send automatically the money to the mother's bank account. But what is the mother's bank account? Okay, let's ask it from the tax and custom. Like, do do you have the latest bank account of the lady? Yes, you have. Okay, so what algorithm? How much money we should send? Okay, that's the Ministry of Social Affairs. They calculated uh, that amount uh, looking at the, uh, the the income of the mother and the, like some other aspects. Okay, that's the algorithm. And now Minister of Finance can do the transaction. But it all can happen seamlessly on a background. Because all those systems, the tax system, the finance ministry, the social uh, ministry, the hospital, they see this person as one person because we always use the same unique identifier when we, when we define a person in anybody's database. You know, as you look at that, that that is incredibly powerful. Um, my, my head kind of exploded here in the recording booth as you're, as you're saying it because, of course, here in the United States, things are so different. But one of the concerns they would be raised immediately is around um, privacy and also the vulnerability of such a tightly integrated system to um, malicious tampering or mischief. How does the government go about securing and uh, protecting this system um, from malicious actors? Actually, there's two sides. Uh, first of all, I always like when Americans, uh, when, when we say and describe our system and then uh, people from the United States start to talk about the privacy and data protection. I just sold my Facebook shares, like, uh, because, I mean, first of all, I, I can't understand uh, if a uh, company has a huge uh, data security problems, why the share price is still the same. So uh, why share price doesn't actually have any effect yeah, yeah. Uh, if you had, like, uh, huge fuck-ups. That's one thing. Another thing is that in the U.S., you truly believe that if things are on paper, uh, let's say in analog world, let's say your patient record in your hospital, that it's somehow secure than secure than, than digital. And uh, and if I ask you, like, do you actually know who has uh, pictured with a smartphone your uh, patient records? Can you answer me? Do you know that? Do you have access to the data? Like, who yeah, has access to your not, data? Yeah. Right, right, no. Yeah. But that's the difference. In Estonia, everything is digital. So, yes, I mean, it might be sound bad, but also everybody has a control what data can be seen. So if I, I want to cover certain data, let's say I want to hide the fact that I had some kind of mental illness or, I don't know, my my, my, my lady wants to hide uh, the fact that, that she had an abortion, for example. I mean, like something like that. I mean, like I can I can do that. Like obviously those those examples were uh, just examples. Like I haven't had any <laughs> mental illnesses, but <laughs> but maybe maybe in we're future. all friends here, Tavi. <laughs> if you want to talk about it, I'm ready to go there. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but uh, but another thing is that we also see which doctors have accessed our data. So yes, you can also picture the screen, uh, computer screen with a smartphone, but how you get the information to the screen. So it leaves traces. And somehow you understand that if you give a control to the people that they actually can see who have seen their data, they become their own big brother. And, and you understand that being digital is actually more privacy protective than being analog. Because being digital gives you a chance to actually see who has access to data. Mm -hmm. And if you truly want to cover something, you actually can cover that. I mean, everything is linked only on neat basis. 
And in Estonia, we have one only policy. So it means that information can be asked and is described only once. So if some government entity or somebody has certain information, that other one, they cannot have their own copy. They have to take it from the original source. So, for example, the, the person names and then passport data and everything is only described in one place. Uh, information about property, cars, uh, health, described only in one place. And if needed, like we, we, we dig this information from, from that source. Our architecture becomes small bits and pieces in a very distributed architecture, meaning that even if you hack into one system, uh, you get a fraction of data, but you can't get the, everything. So, uh, yes, you might get my, my, my property information, but you can't get my cars or anything else. And uh, property information, for example, anyway, is, is publicly available in Estonia. So I can, I can query anyways who owns what. But distributed architecture is actually the future. That's the same evangelism what Intel and VMware is doing at the moment in, in the United States. So we actually have been doing it in the right way since the beginning. And, and that actually saved us uh, when Russians hacked uh, tried to attack and hack us in 2007. Among the services that are digitized or online is uh, voting, and that's an issue obviously in the United States that people are very um, paying a lot of attention to. Explain just a little bit um, how long you guys uh, in Estonia have been voting electronically and and how that system uh, works. So we have been voting last 13 years, one free, so since 2005. And uh, if we say electronic voting, or we, we actually don't want to say electronic voting because United States have spoiled that term, uh, we say I voting. So electronic voting in your United States is that you actually have machines in your voting stations. Yeah, and they're terrible. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're terrible. So our electronic voting is nothing like that. Estonia uses I voting, which means voting over the internet. So I can stay at home and vote over the internet. I can be in Japan, vote over the internet. I can be in Boston, vote over the internet. I just log in my uh, uh, digital identity uh, to my choice, and then I confirm my choice with my digital, digital signature. So that's how it goes, like less than one minute and the whole process. And your digital signature, where does your where does your digital signature reside? It's actually, every Estonian has a digital identity. Uh, digital identity is provided by the government, and you have you can you can have um, like different carriers of your identity. I mean, yeah, you can use ID card, or you can use mobile ID, or you can use smart ID. They have different um, security levels. Uh, for example, for voting, uh, mostly you can do it uh, like with ID card or using mobile ID, but also your computer. Just using your phone uh, currently is not possible because we don't think that phones are secure enough to allow voting applications on, on those devices. As you move more and more services online, um, what happens to the government bureaucracy itself? Does it get smaller as, as uh some of these services are able to kind of self-provision and also as people are able to self-serve, you know, access services on their own without needing to go through a, a government employee. I mean, I have seen this world uh, from two sides. Uh, one, first of all, my, my private sector company was one of the largest software service provider to the government. So that was the period where we went from paper to the digital services. But when I was CIO, uh, we, we did a second leap. And the second leap is that uh, 
the best service is no service. So, I mean, how you reorganize your processes in a way that uh, you don't actually need any uh, like human inter- intervention anymore. So just the same example with the, with the child support money, like why the lady needs to apply. I mean, we know the fact the child was born, let's do it automatically. We have all the information pieces we need for this transaction, let's just ex- execute that. So trying to find the same thing like, like ev- everywhere. Like, I mean, the problem with government services is that people are using them so rarely that you cannot talk about any user experience in government. So I'm actually personally against of government portals. Yeah, I'm against right. the government portals because uh, the fact that you uh, gather all the services in one place doesn't help you at all. I mean, like we have that and we have seen what, what kind of pain it is. If you have like 2,000 services there and then uh, uh, a person, or let's say, needs to have a construction permit, like how many houses you're building during your lifetime? One, two... Right. Yeah. So right. yeah. yeah. So that, right. any 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 time you go there, it will be a totally new experience for you. And even if you are like Google or Facebook or, or Apple, if something is complicated and you experience it first time, you can have the best UI on earth. Like people still don't, don't feel comfortable, and people feel comfortable if they do the same things several times. Like so, if you can create the services in a way that that uh, you, you minimize the human interaction to absolute zero. That should be the government goal. And, and that was the second, second way where I had chance as a government CIO to, to influence that. You know, identity is really the, the key to all of this, um, secure, strong digital identity. What are some of the, as you look around at, at different countries, both in, in Europe and North America, what are they getting wrong when it comes to digital ide- identity and, and how they're rolling it out or utilizing it or not utilizing it? Uh, first of all, I mean, the, all along the Saxi countries, one thing they do wrong, you don't have unique identifiers. So uh, you have your own unique identifier in, in your U.S. healthcare system, but that cannot be used in, let's say, in banks or in private sector. And that's the first thing you do wrong, because from the engineer's perspective, uh, you can't build digital society without having the same unique identifiers. Because uh, if you can't connect the data, you just can't build a digital society. So it's just giving a task to Germans that, please build me a car, but you can't use a wheel. And uh, so you have you have made a, a, an engineering issue. You have made it political, and that's mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. your problem. And like all the countries mm-hmm. who have solved that, that they have seen that no 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 no. Actually, having ability to connect data doesn't mean that we actually have to give away data protection or privacy. I mean, I already explained to you uh, how we actually can can provide better privacy, let's say, in healthcare than you in your, with your online systems. So, uh, like, our nations have understood that. They have understood that if I have a unique identifier, it doesn't mean that I actually give away my privacy. As you, as a technologist, look ahead and see, maybe not as much in Estonia, I don't know, but certainly 
in countries like Germany, in the Netherlands, in the United States, and so on. Smart city and, and smart infrastructure really starting to take hold. What is the approach to that going to be in Estonia to both leverage the advantages and efficiencies of smart city and, and smart infrastructure without creating new risks or vulnerabilities? I mean, there are always new risks if, if you invent something new. And uh, definitely one of the biggest problems with IoT is how to get them uh, updated. I mean, from the security perspective, let's say, for example, the vulnerabilities always happen and there is no such code that is without any kind of bugs. If Even if you are, like, cyber, from cybersecurity perspective, you are broken, it doesn't actually mean anything because the shareholders don't care. If you look at the share prices of, like, several companies with, with huge security problems, like, uh, shareholders don't care about security. I mean, or data leakage or, like, any kind of that stuff. So that's a worrying worrying. This sounds really inspiring. I guess the question I was going to ask is you're a small country, 1.3 million people, although f- geographically a fairly large yeah, country. But how do, you evang- <laughs> how do you evang- – yeah, I know. I, I need to visit. It sounds, it sounds gorgeous, um, and I've never been. Um, but how do you spread the word about this to other countries and get them to maybe, if not do everything that Estonia has done, kind of move in the same direction? Have you had much – success in evangelizing this or spreading the word of this to other countries in and around you in Europe or elsewhere in the world? Um, to be honest, um, we truly tried to do that five, six years ago. I mean, to go out and talk about it a lot. And uh, we even created a specific uh, division and, and, and a showroom to to basically explain how, how the whole Estonia thing works. And uh, still more than 20 delegations per week are visiting it. Like if their country truly wants to change, like India, for example, at the moment, we help. Uh, we, we go in, we have our playbooks, uh, we, we truly want to help. And, and I'm actually a huge fan of India because, yes, there are still many things to do, but the, but the, but the baseline is solid. The baseline, what they have built, for example, with the Aadhaar, it's solid and, and you can you can have like a modern digital society on top of that, which you can't actually have in... So what, what work are you doing I mean, in India? Uh, do you understand like uh, what needs to be done to improve the, uh, the way how they provide government services to the people? So it's a huge task. And I, I don't want to talk more, but, but uh, for example, in the US, uh, you just talk about it, but um, as you don't have a pain... And you don't see the pain in future. Oh, you blipped out I mean, there. Say that again. Uh, in, in the US, US again. You don't have a pain. You, you, I lost. you lost me? Yeah. You still lost me? I did, but now you're back. Okay. So go ahead. Yeah, no, so you're in the US, like, uh, you don't have a pain. I mean, there has to be a pain for digital transformation. So Estonia had a pain. I mean, uh, we are, as you said, a uh, small country, people-wise, large country, land-wise. So we had to use internet to govern our country, but you don't have a pain and you don't see the problem in future. So you, you don't see this as a problem. For example, if I say, what if your Y and Z generation won't start their companies in, in US anymore, but they will start them with something where it's more convenient. I'm not referring to Estonia here. I'm, I think Estonia won't be a competitor, but, mm-hmm. but what if something, somebody bigger, more meaningful actually makes that happen? And what if the government service truly becomes a commodity in a way that we could we cannot even imagine? 
just to remind you, if you go out in Boston, 2008, the same, let's say, the same date, like 10 years ago, you, you go out today at the moment mm -hmm. and you ask people, like, can you describe me a perfect smartphone? What do you think what they would answer to you? Yeah, no, like the no. iPhone. iPhone was just born. Like most of the people have never touched even iPhone. They were basically oh, in two thousand and eight. They would take, yeah, well, they would take yeah. out their uh, latest Nokia phone and say, "Okay, it's the same phone with a, with a better camera." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but like, even if they describe your iPhone, I think none of them could describe how we actually use this device. I mean, it shouldn't be called phone anymore because the last thing we do with that is calling. So, uh, so, so the same thing. Same of thing course, here. Right. I mean, what if somebody actually cracks this government service in a way that, uh, I don't know, like creates a, creates a new virtual country that everybody wants to be part of, like, uh, or, or like, uh, truly deals with that. I mean, creates a perfect, like, virtual, virtual environment, like, uh, unimaginable. It can happen, like it was with, with iPhone. Yeah. Well, it's true that you see change and you see reform when there is kind of an existential threat. And certainly, you know, in the United States, you saw a lot of uh, reforms in the 30s because there was the threat of communism and, and uh, that was a very real threat. Um, and perhaps that's what we'll see in the digital realm as well, that governments will reform when they perceive uh, that there is an existential threat. Um, from from outside, uh, somehow I have my doubts with U.S. Don't get me wrong, but the fact that more and more children need to die because you still can't understand that you actually could solve the problem with the guns if you truly want to do that, and there are examples in the world available. I mean, that doesn't give me too much hope. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Tavi Kotka of Proud Engineers and former CIO of Estonia, thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. Okay. If your company is looking to reach an audience of discerning technology and information security professionals, you should consider sponsoring the Security Ledger podcast. Each month, our episodes are streamed by thousands of professionals across the globe who have an interest in news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day. Join companies like RSA Security, Qualys, Flashpoint, Looking Glass as a Security Ledger podcast sponsor by pointing your web browser to securityledger.com forward slash sponsor. The security of IT systems has long been an abstract problem for technologists steeped in the arcana of hardware, software, and communications protocols. The specter of the city of Kiev darkened by cyber attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid, or of Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in the U.S. and National Health Services hospitals in the U.K. crippled by ransomware and the NotPetya malware, prove that the consequences of cyber attacks, just like kinetic attacks, can now be measured in body counts. Our next guest, Joshua Corman, the Cybersecurity 321. Josh Corman, the Chief Security Officer at PTC, has been raising the alarm about the rising stakes of cybersecurity for years. 321 has been raising the alarm about the cyber physical stakes of insecurity for years. 
3321, has been raising the alarm about the cyber-physical consequences of insecure IT systems for years. Almost five years ago, he was among a handful of security experts who launched I Am the Cavalry, an effort to get the technology industry to take the point on improving the security of safety-critical systems. He's worked closely with legislators in the House and Senate to draft to craft draft les- three, two, one, to craft draft legislation that provides guidelines for connected device security. And he's been a strong advocate for companies of all stripes to adapt three two one to adopt a software bill of materials that allows them and their customers to track and manage the security of the many components that go into modern software products. Three two one the many component software and hardware components that make up modern connected products. In our second segment, we invited Josh into the Security Ledger studio to talk about his work and give us a preview of his talk at next week's Security of Things Forum in Boston. Together, we talk about the progress that has been made in the last five years and the work that's still left to be done. To start off our conversation, I asked Josh to talk about some of the work he's been doing on Capitol Hill to encourage smart legislation that addresses threats like the Mirai IoT botnet and populations of what Josh terms threats such as the Mirai IoT botnet and what Josh terms the long tail of low-cost, low-hygiene connected devices like IP-enabled cameras. Joshua Corman, Chief Security Officer for PTC and founder of I Am The Cavalry. Josh, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We've got so much to talk about. I don't even know where to start, but I think where I want to start is by talking about or asking you about some of the great and important work you've been doing alongside our lawmakers in Washington, D.C. to try and forge you know, rules of the road, uh, security standards for Internet of Things, and, you know, we're, we're kind of coming up uh, on the summer break and, and uh, you know, the midterm elections. Where, where, does, that, where does that work stand and, and what types of things are bubbling there uh, regarding IoT and security? And- mm. So for our, our cybersecurity listeners and our InfoSec folks, they just threw up a little in their mouth, right? They, don't, they still don't like legislation or government involvement in technology. I think we're going to have to hold our nose and eat our lima beans here a bit. And we're going to have to develop a taste. It can't be so binary as like legislation, good legislation, bad. It's like saying fire, good fire, bad. Like we're, we're smarter than that. And we can be more nuanced. Um, there has been, I think that bill, there's a Senator Warner bill is probably the first one that comes to mind. It was an IOT security improvement act. Um, bipartisan support introduced today. We got back from DEF CON on August 1st. I think the last time I was on your episodes, uh, it was like uh, October. I just testified to a House OGR hearing with uh, Representative Hurd, uh, who one of the guys we took to, to DEF CON, by the way, uh, where they were looking to introduce an, a bipartisan companion bill in the House, uh, and we're digging into the, the basic tenants. Um, that's the one that's got the most heat and light and debate. It seemed to have gone cold there for a little bit, but um, as more attacks kept happening, and um, some of the older attacks were rearing their ugly head again. There's been a flurry of heat and light on that. So just to remind your listeners what that bill entailed, it was essentially a response to the Mirai botnet. And it looked at those that long tail of low-cost, low-hygiene IoT devices and the mostly internet cameras 
um, which three defining characteristics the way I, I describe it were number one, an internet connection. Uh, number two, um, they had hard coded credentials or passwords that made it easily guessable for the botnet. And then three, it had, uh, they were not patchable. So, um, when I mean internet connected, I mean not hidden behind a NAT, right? So this was uh, internet connected, fixed credentials unpatchable, which spelled an unremediable, um, very large pool of devices that can levy a lot of damage at things. In this particular case, like Dyn, it took out the internet for a day. So Senator Warner's team and, and himself, who made a lot of money in high tech, said, wait a second, I keep getting told that if we regulate IT or IoT, we're going we're gonna to hurt the economy. But it looks to me like a failure to do so can hurt the economy. How do we make sure this doesn't happen anymore? But essentially, in response to that, Mirai said, we're going to use federal procurement power to say anything, any IoT sold to the federal government must, number one, uh, should be free of known vulnerabilities, or you should declare when you have them. That way, you're not you know, shipping 10-year-old exploitable known vulnerabilities. Number two, should be patchable. So you shouldn't sell something that's both hackable and unpatchable. Number three, you should be free of fixed credentials, so no hard-coded passwords of passwords that you couldn't change if you wanted to. Uh, number four, I think it was like, don't roll your own crypto, but I think the phrasing was uh, you should use standards-based crypto and, and communication protocols or declare when you're not. And number five, um, you know, since you're going to miss stuff, it's probably a good idea to have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program and give safe harbor to researchers who use it. So those things in concert was essentially trying to raise the base hygiene of IOT sold the federal government. Now that's not going to stop the next Mirai because a lot of those devices were bought and deployed in Vietnam, for example. But what it does is it uses a leadership example for federal procurement. It says you don't have to do these things, but if you want to sell to the federal government or if you're a brand that wants to sell to potentially other governments, you know, well, these are the kind of hygiene things we expect. Um, and then if you're paying attention to European law, um, the UK government has a very, very similar code of practice that uh, has actually got a little more teeth than even that. Um, and that kind of bill is the one being debated right now. Like what could the chamber of commerce and software trade associations get behind which pieces of it, maybe all of it. Um, how do you play with the definition of IOT? Um, so that that's the current level of furious debate going on. Not doing it. This summer DEF CON time, I think we're coming up on the fifth anniversary, Josh of I am the cavalry, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we turned five. Um, we did our soft launch at B-Size Las Vegas, and then uh, we get the main stage that Sunday morning at DEF CON and uh, weren't sure if it was going to get laughed at or or adopted, but we wanted to try to find the adults in the room and be a voice of reason and helping hand. The cavalry tends to focus on the the, the why and the what, which was um, our dependence on connected technologies growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life. So we were really worried about wherever bits and bytes met flesh and blood, you know, hackable cars, hackable medical equipment, oil and gas, you know, any, anything that can kill you essentially. And the idea was um, the cavalry isn't coming. I had spent uh, last few years prior to that looking high and deep in the federal government and, and regulators and safety critical industries to figure out if we just got the right message to the right people, they'd go fix it for us. And that was not happening. <laughs> I got as high and deep as you can get. We even brought five hackers into Fort Meade for two days to try to um, worked directly with General Alexander's team, and he basically said, "There's no political will for this. Somebody else has to die first for that. You know, there is too much of a private sector leadership role right now. You know, and once we realize if the cavalry isn't coming, then you're either depressed 
because nothing's going to get better or you're empowered to say, fine, if they're not coming, it falls to us. Let's just do what we can. And not us being Josh or his crazy band of friends. It was you, right? I am the cavalry became that personal declaration that you were going to try to be part of that solution and think like a hacker and fuzz the chain of influence and just try stuff. Well, that stuff has definitely been paying off with pretty profound um, changes on the part of the FDA, some automotive, uh, a lot of deep trust relationships in executive branch agencies like Commerce Department or DOT or HHS. Um, you know, I got to serve on that healthcare cybersecurity task force that published about a year ago how bad hospitals are. So you know, we're seeing significant engagement, adoption of coordinated vulnerability disclosure and a better attitude towards good guy researchers, stuff like that doesn't mean we're done by any stretch, but we wanted to see could an approach that started with a helping hand instead of a pointing finger be more successful than just screaming in the darkness or laughing at failure. Um, so really the heart of it was empathy and trying brand new stuff to see if you got brand new results. Um, I, I think we have, <laughs> it doesn't mean we're done. Um, you know, fair criticism has been, there's still so much wrong and we're, we're getting better, but we're getting worse faster. Um, the phrase I've been using lately with policymakers is, you know, we through our over-dependence on undependable things, uh, we have created the conditions where any accident or adversary can have a profound impact on public safety, human life, national security. You know, these attacks are getting more common. They're more damaging. They're going to start having death tolls. You know, we used to talk in theory about attacks on the power grids. Now we've seen Russia do it to Ukraine plural times. We talked about Shodan having industrial control systems naked on the internet. We now have unsealed DOJ documents that Iranian hackers were doing it to water facilities. You know, we talked about hospitals were prone, but no one ever attacked them. Well, after an accidental ransomware hit Hollywood Presbyterian and shut down patient care for a week, then you saw ransom specifically target healthcare, and now healthcare is the number one targeted industry. I mean, WannaCry, we just had the one-year anniversary of WannaCry over Mother's Day weekend. That, that affected 81 hospitals in the UK government in a matter of hours. It was 41% of their national capacity. And not all of them shut down, but I think something like 8% were shut down hard. And if any of those were stroke victims or heart patients or brain on delayed integrated patient care, then you know it increased the death tolls that weekend. So when you start seeing these things uh, become more commonplace, I mean, look, not just WannaCry, but NotPetya. One of the stories very often told about NotPetya is the $300 million of damage to Merck pharmaceutical production. Well, if you think about pharmaceuticals, those are our national security supply of vaccines for pandemics. That's our supply of hep C, which in the same month, the Centers for Disease Control may be unrelated, but in the same month, they declared they were below their national security levels required uh, for hep C. Yeah. So they, you know, Mark had to stop production of Gardasil and uh, dip into their strategic reserve to make up for their uh, manufacturing outage caused by NotPetya. So. So you have as a nation state cyber munition meant to stay within a blast radius of Ukraine, escapes its blast radius and affects national critical infrastructure and national supply of vaccines. But the story very few people talk about with uh, NotPetya is it also affected the availability of Nuance voice dictation software in the cloud, which is a near monopoly for doctors and physicians to give patient notes that get transcribed into drug orders and test procedures. So when the global access to nuanced software is affected for a protracted amount of time, that degraded, degraded and delayed patient care uh, is material. I know one of the 
folks I worked with through the task force said she had to hire 50 um, voice to text uh, translation people, humans taking like Apple memo notes and turning them into doctor's orders because nuance was down. So, you know, if these are the, the, the costs of failure before you see rampant escalation, it's just going to get worse. And, and meanwhile, you know, we're, we're debating about whether or not we should have a, a device with a password of password. Yeah. I talked to a woman for a company in Texas that was shipping a, a blowout preventer uh, via, via Maersk right. to, you know, a, a rig up in, you know, uh, Northern Europe that got lost for about a month and a half. You know, it was sitting in a port. A month and a half. Yeah. And you think about the ripple effects of, of that, not only this, the safety risk of having this critical piece of instrumentation that's that's sitting on a dock, you know, unaccounted for, uh, but also just kind of the economic ripples of that, you know, rig being down and and uh, the jobs that were, you know, associated with bringing that uh, blow preventer out to the rig and, and everything else, you know, I mean, it, think how many perishable goods were, were lost. Think of the customer service problems. Think of, you know, the impact that that one attack had on the economy. So these things are finally getting political well. Um, the question is going to be, are we engaged in making sure they're technically literate responses? They're helpful responses. They're, they're well implemented and deployed. Um, I mean, one thing we are, we're hearing a lot about now or a lot of speculation about, obviously, is the election system with the midterm elections coming up. I wonder sometimes, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, you don't hear much kind of differentiated talk about the threat to uh, elections, you know, that it, it's it's kind of spoken about monolithically, but you and I would both recognize that, of course, n- not all voting districts are equal and that, you know, advanced attackers or, or not all states are equal, that these are not going to be blanket attacks or kind of targeted ones. And, and sometimes I wonder, do elections officials and Department of Homeland Security see it that way? Or, or do they look at it kind of as a just an amorphous, you know, uh, voting systems are at risk? And, and they're trying to kind of secure everything everywhere all at once. I mean, I think, you know, I did quite a bit on this through my role uh, at the Cyber State Craft Initiative for Atlantic Council. Um, we held a, quite a few pretty excellent public and private events on hacking the vote before the election and then some after. Um, in fact, uh, Kim Zetter hosted one of them with like Joe Hall and um, um, Jeremy Epstein and some others. But I kind of broke it down into what are all the ways a foreign power could manipulate the outcome of a free and democratic election and hacking individual voting machines is one of the least effective and most auditable and invisible ways to do it. So it's, it's, it's not a distraction. I think it was excellent that DEF CON had the voting hacking village. Um, and it's, you know, demonstrably more effective to use our social media against us for information operations campaigns and hearts and minds and sentiment now and sway than um, the actual physical machines or the tallies. You know, if you make a threat model of all the things that could get hit, you know, there's the tallying, there's the cross-checking, there's the, the coverage, but it's really the hearts and minds that's the easiest. There's a natural biodiversity to the machines themselves, right? There's so many of them with so many different versions that the same hack is less likely to work on each. Often they'll require physical access. They're tamper evident. There's some sort of audit controls. So it doesn't mean I don't think we should care. It means the most effective means are the ones that aren't really the machines themselves, but the people showing up or not voting or not and how they're voting or not. Um, so it's certainly worthy to have debate, but we should prioritize our efforts more on the uh, the hearts and minds and information operations. 
let's talk good stuff. So what what are some uh, some highlights, some things that we can look back on the last uh, year or so and say these these are accomplishments, these are things that uh, have gone right. I, this is a little bit bittersweet. There's some good and bad mixed into these, but um, it's it's been about a year since a, a, a trinity of pretty high impact things. Um, in about a four week span, we had the WannaCry attacks take out the hospitals um, in the UK and abroad. We had the publication of our healthcare congressional task force on cybersecurity, uh, and we had um, uh, the first clinical hacking simulations in Arizona where we killed three patients in live ERs, uh, in simulations, of course, not actual deaths, with physicians and, and demonstrable hacks to see how prepared they were. A, a lot of uh, there was a lot of catalytic behavior that came out of there. Um, that very visceral experience for hospitals um, got physicians to test their assumptions about the preparedness. And it got a lot of good debate going on, okay, if, if this bedside infusion pump can get hacked um, and we don't have any evidence to capture or logging and we're not asking forensics and we're not training our uh, physicians to, to, to include the devices in their skepticism, you know, what could we do differently? So we've had a few follow-on hacking simulation since then in New York. And we did a live hacking demo on stage at RSA this past year. Um, one of the great things that came out of the task force report, while we had over 100 submissions, um, a huge one that you and I have been passionate about for a very long time is probably one of my most full-throated um, recommendation in that 100 was that all medical technologies should be required to have a software bill of materials as well as third-party and open source libraries in them. Um, the reason for this is essentially at purchase time, physicians and hospitals could determine higher hygiene devices from lower hygiene ones based on who has the most known vulnerabilities or whatnot. Uh, but more importantly, during an active attack, they can answer, am I affected and where am I affected in seconds? And that way, if there is a big attack going on, they don't have to wonder which of their thousand pieces of equipment might put them at risk, they can find out, okay, we have this version of JBoss and these six devices, let's go patch them or take them offline. And that, um, that uh, recently, I think it was right before Thanksgiving, House Energy and Commerce Chairman wrote a letter to HHS saying, we really like this recommendation for software bill materials and medical technology, please go do it. Even though HHS is large and varied and of which FDA is only a part, they don't actually have recommendation or jurisdiction over electronic health record systems, for example, which are often the target of um, ransomware, uh, that was assigned within HHS. And um, I, I hear it will be um, convened and acted upon uh, this month, in fact. So um, there was a gesture during RSA from uh, um, Chairman Gottlieb from FDA and part of their security action plan. Uh, not it was a medical device physical safety is a safety action plan. Um, one of the things they specifically called out was cybersecurity, and they did refer to these kind of things. So it looks like after six years, even when I think I was working at Akamai at the time when I saw that Apache Struts two vulnerability take out most of the banks, and I said it's open season on open source. It looks like six years later, we may actually be near checkmate on software bill materials. Um, I think what's going to play out is you'll see medical device makers uh, shape and sculpt and develop a sustainable format for this. And after a year of doing it, as long as it does all the beneficial things we expect it to and doesn't break the, the market like we also expect it won't, it'll be really hard for other software manufacturers to, to spread their FUD and say that this is terrible. We're going to have an existence proof that it's delivering significant value. 
and then it'll be easier to go widescreen on something like software bill materials. So that's probably the most encouraging thing of the year. So it looks like that might be the most encouraging thing of the year is uh, both uh, HHS willingness and appetite to, to do a software bill of materials and medical technology. And that if it doesn't go poorly, uh, actually, and, and that House Energy and Commerce, their oversight committee wants them to do it. <laughs> so you have legislative and executive branch support. But if it doesn't go poorly, I think this will become uh, something that goes widescreen for all software. And to punctuate that, while I was giving the keynote at RBASAC, I saw a tweet out from uh, NTIA, right, the U.S. Commerce Department, and they've announced, I think it's July 19th, they're going to be doing a, another multi-stakeholder process on software transparency and bill of materials. So it looks like NTA is engaging the private sector like we did for the coordinated vulnerability disclosure stuff and the patchability labels. Um, it, it looks like this thing's happening, right? And and why shouldn't it? Now, can it be done poorly? Absolutely. Uh, but is it, you know, essentially comparable to the value we have for ingredients lists and in food? Um, isn't it actionable at purchase time? Isn't it actionable during an active attack? Uh, to know what third-party open source libraries you have. So if we can get that done, I mean, that's huge. It doesn't mean we won't get attacked. It just means that sunlight is a really good disinfectant for all those um, known but unmitigated vulnerabilities that we've been carrying around behind because no one's been looking. I think the act of rendering it visible will cause people to eliminate any elective attack surface they can. And I think um, it finally gives some advantage back in that meantime to remediation for defenders, right? Adversaries already know we're vulnerable. That's why their meantime exploitation is, you know, days or weeks. But when defenders meantime to patch is months or years, we've got to find any and all ways we can to avoid that elected attack service and then compress our meantime to remediate really, really fast. Um, so that, that one's probably the thing I'm most excited about. It might seem like a small thing, but we're often fighting blindly and dying quickly in uh, in our ability to try to stop these known vulnerabilities. So you're going to be giving a talk at our Security Things Forum on June 19th. What are you going to highlight? I'm really fixed right now on the, the notion that this is a relay race with lots of parties in it. Um, so as you know, I, I left the private, I, went, I left the uh, public policy think tank and went back to the private sector about, I don't know, seven, eight months ago now, I'm the chief security officer at PTC. And, you know, I look at it like, even if I can get everything right and make, you know, really rugged, resilient, defensible mm -hmm. software, if the people who develop on that platform and extend it are either lazy or cheap or, or ignorant or all the above, um, you know, they can still get people hurt. And, and even once the developers do their part, if the operational technology environments like factories or hospitals or if these safety critical environments don't ever apply the patches, then we're still sitting ducks. And it's to me, it's a multi-legged relay race where it's a shared responsibility model. So I'm really going to outline um, that if you look at this as a relay race, if the mean time to exploitation for an adversary, like I said, is uh, days or weeks and you know, every leg of the relay race on the defender side is, a, is six months to a year long. We're toast, right? So everyone's like, well, we don't patch an OT because, you know, change is bad. And they keep clutching to the, you know, the current state and the legacy uh, assumptions of OT environments. But that's when we allegedly had a, an air gap and we didn't have much adversary activity. And these systems were incredibly isolated. So they may have been vulnerable, but they were not exposed. Well, 
guess what? You know, the Internet of Things and industrial IoT connectivity and predictive maintenance and analytics, that is deliberately added connectivity and perforated that air gap on purpose. So connectivity has changed everything. And as we've seen uh, a larger volume and variety of uh, safety critical attacks from nation states, mostly um, adversary have changed. So if you look at it, hyperconnectivity changed everything. Adversary attack density has changed everything. The only thing that hasn't changed is our defensive posture. So um, the thrust of my talk will be which changes do each of us in this relay race have to make such that we have a fighting chance because with great connectivity comes great responsibility and you know, the people that aren't willing or able to change their posture on patching or hygiene, you know, they're, they're endangering their customers. They're endangering the public. They're endangering national security and, and it's time to evolve. So I want to make sure we each understand the role we have to play. I'm certainly going to drive the changes I can in my sphere of influence, but that's not going to be enough. If the prevailing belief is, oh, we're in OT, we don't patch. We're in big, big trouble. So we've got to fit that flip that bit that um, if you want to be connected, this is what it entails and costs. And, you know, a lot of our friends in thought leaders, quote unquote, in InfoSec, you know, they're constantly defending the status quo saying, oh, patching's hard. You guys are, you don't understand. Patching's hard. They're right. Patching is hard. But I look at this like the free speech debates, right? You know, the answer to hate speech isn't less speech. It's more speech, better speech. And conversely, the answer to the fact that patching is brittle and unreliable and slow and disruptive, the answer to bad patching isn't no patching, it's better patching. And the, I think current state is wildly dangerous. And I think desired state is going to be really hard to get to. But I, I'm hoping we can shift our attitudes from defending the current state to finding a pathway from current state to desired state. And that path is going to start with single steps. And I don't uh, I know which steps I'm going to be taking, but we have to do them in parallel versus in series or else we're never going to get good enough fast enough. So I think we're kind of out of time. You know, I, I had a, I was standing on a burning platform five years ago when I launched I'm the Cavalry. I was deeply concerned. And like I said, we've made some dents and some progress, but I think in some ways, well, all we've done is shown what's possible. And now we need more people to bring it scale and precision to, to act on what's possible. We're not going to be able to do everything, but we have to do more than we've done thus far. And I'm hoping that mainstream adoption uh, comes next. So uh, I have a little bit of a surprise up my sleeve for your your, your talk at in mid June. But um, you know, the middle and the status quo is the only wrong answer right now. I mean, could we make things worse? Sure, but if we keep things at current course and speed, we're in big big trouble because that connectivity is just going up, up, up. Adversary activity is going up, up, up. And the consequences of it are getting worse. It's not even a matter that we can wait until something really, really bad happens and react because for many of these safety critical industries, the, the R&D lead times are so protracted. It could be five, 10, 15 years before we actually have the superior supply getting in place. I don't know. I, I'm kind of hoping that middle of the road uh, infosec person or a researcher or thought leader says stop saying what's wrong with that thing and starts asking what's right with that proposal and how do i make it stronger we're out of time josh corman chief security officer at ptc thank you so much for coming on the security ledger podcast it's been great having you back on josh thanks all right bye-bye